You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Father's Day again to you dads. Now we have a lot of dads in the house. Uh, Psalm 127 is an interesting dad scripture because it says children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And without a doubt, children are a blessing from the Lord. My friend Bill and I were just joking. It's kind of like every day is kids day. And we get one day a year as fathers, which is Father's Day, right? Um, so children are a blessing, but that being said, being a dad is the toughest job you will ever love. And I speak from experience on that. Uh, you men who get the privilege of being a father, you know, it's by far the most important job you will ever have. Because as a father, you truly are re- irreplaceable and you know, you have the opportunity really as a father to influence generations to come. And I was thinking about um, when I was in the corporate world, I had the opportunity to actually meet Coach John Wooden. And those of you that are too young to remember who John Wooden is, just tune me out for the next 30 seconds. But if you know who John Wooden is, one of the most successful college basketball coaches ever, I think the most successful college basketball coach ever. But when he would speak, he would talk about a poem that he shared um, He actually recited this from memory, which was amazing. He could just read it from memory. But his dad shared him, Joshua Wooden, his dad shared this with him when he was a young man. I thought it was appropriate for Father's Day. It says, a careful man I want to be. A little fellow follows me. I do not dare to go astray for fear he'll go the self-same way. I cannot once escape his eyes. Whatever he sees me do, he tries Like me, he says he's going to be the little chap who follows me. He thinks that I'm so very fine, believes in every word of mine. The base in me, he must not see that little chap who follows me. I must remember as I go through summer sun and winter snow, I'm building for the years to be the little chap who follows me. I just love that because I think it captures the, the... the way that a father can influence generations to come. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have a great father, and uh, he, I followed him, and he still lives with my mom in this tiny little town in rural Iowa where I grew up. My dad is a very wise man. He seems to get wiser as I get older. Um, <laughs> he's a man of great integrity. He's respected by many. And, you know, he's one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my life, and I have the utmost respect for him. I'm just going to share a quick story about my dad. Um, It's a story that will actually tie into my sermon today, so please don't tune me out just yet. Uh, But when I was about five years old, my dad took my brother and I out into the woods in the bitterly cold Iowa winter to cut firewood. And we did that every Saturday and Sunday. Now, keep in mind, in a five-year-old mind, going out to the bitter cold to cut firewood in the woods in the middle of winter is like a Siberian labor camp. That's what it was like to me. It was horrible. I wanted to be at home in my pajamas in front of the TV watching Bugs Bunny like all of my friends at five years old. But we continued to cut firewood and and, uh, pretty soon we started selling this firewood. And and we had uh, my dad had this old Chevy truck. We'd fill it up and we'd get $50 per truckload. We'd haul this wood down to the big fancy houses in Des Moines. 
And we started saving this money that we made from each truckload. And after a few years of selling firewood, we had enough money scraped up to bar, kind of buy this marginal piece of, of ground. It's about 40 acres of timber ground in the middle of nowhere. And that was the birth of Twins Tree Farm, which my dad started with his twin brother. And we cleared the land and we started planting Christmas trees uh, when I was in grade school. And uh, keep in mind, my dad had a day job. And so this is something we did after school and we did on, on the weekends. And so the tree farm was a whole new kind of torture for me as a young man. <laughs> Planting literally thousands of trees in the spring soil. Now, the ground doesn't freeze in California. It freezes. It's ice. It's rock hard in the Midwest. And we're, it's semi-frozen. And you're trying to put a spade in the ground to plant trees. That was difficult. Hand-watering the trees. Thousands of trees with a hose. Difficult and boring. You know, and then we had to prune the trees because the trees have to be pruned. They have to be shaped like a Christmas tree. And so that involved a razor sharp machete about this long, walking around and cutting the branches off one after the other thousands of times. Dangerous, probably violating a few child labor laws with that one. But it was hard. And, you know, we planted these trees and slowly kind of a decade of this prison labor passed. And it takes about 10 years to grow a Christmas tree. And so... By the time I was in high school, the first Christmas trees were ready to harvest. And we harvested hundreds of Christmas trees every year, all the way through my college years. And so with the money we made from those trees, I paid my way through college. And I graduated uh, from a private college with a bachelor's degree in four years, uh, summa cum laude. And thanks to the foresight of my dad planting those trees, I was able to graduate with no debt whatsoever which was amazing, and certainly a testament to the foresight of my dad. So my dad taught me some hard lessons, but the value of hard work is, I think, one of the most important values that he ever taught me. Um, and, and I'll come back to this story of my dad in a few minutes. But uh, by the way, if you use artificial Christmas trees, I just ask you to repent. <laughs> because you need to buy real trees, and you could be paying some kids way through college. You never know. So, buy real trees. So, today we're continuing our sermon series that we've entitled, I have to say, Hashtag Wisdom. Because I was saying Pound Wisdom, which I think uh, my wife Mia corrected me on. It just shows you how uncool I am. But, you know, what is the hashtag that makes it so cool? You put hashtag in front of any word today and it's now all of a sudden cool. So, okay, Hashtag Wisdom. Yes, Hashtag Mark Seeger. But anyway, in this series... We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And Steve Marici kicked us off in this series last week, uh, and he provided us some very interesting background about the city of Corinth. And you can hear his sermon, by the way, on the South Bay Church app, which you can download from the App Store. And also, if you have the app up today, you can actually pull up my notes for today's sermon on the notes section of the app. But Corinth was one of the largest and the richest cities in the, in the ancient world. And it was a major center of commerce. And I actually had the opportunity to travel to Corinth personally back when I was in college. And that's why I put that picture there. That was the only picture I could find of me in Corinth. And you can see me amongst the Greek ruins espousing something. I guess it was a precursor of preaching. But I was not a Christian at the time. But that's what Corinth looks like. And it's, it's really interesting how it's situated on this isthmus between two bodies of water. So it is very strategically positioned. But Corinth is this gateway into the Eastern world. And Corinth was also infamous throughout the Roman Empire as a very worldly city. 
And in fact, Corinth became synonymous with immorality, carousing, sexual promiscuity, as Steve talked about last week. And the Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. And he spent about a year and a half in Corinth. So that was a long time for him because he tended to move around a lot. And as with all of the churches he founded, Paul really considered himself their spiritual father. And after planting this Corinthian church and staying for a while, Paul, you know, then continued on his missionary journeys. Eventually he left Corinth. And eventually, after he had left Corinth, he received some bad news uh, about divisions in this young Corinthian church. And last week, Steve talked about what some of the Corinthians were struggling with. Um, Corinth was like a modern-day Los Angeles, New York, Las Vegas, all wrapped into one. It was a very worldly city. And so like a good father, Paul was concerned. And that compelled him to write this first letter to the Corinthians to address a lot of the problems that the church had at that time. And, you know, Paul opens his first letter to the Corinthians with encouragement. He actually encourages them and reminds them that through Jesus they had been sanctified. And by God's grace they were rich in eloquent speech and spiritual gifts and knowledge. But immediately after his initial encouragement, the very first thing that Paul hones in on is the Corinthians' lack of unity. Because divisions were forming in the church. You had different groups of people following different leaders. And you had some that were saying, I'm following Paul. And others were saying, I'm following Apollos. And others were saying, I'm following Cephas or Peter. Some were saying, I follow Jesus. And so it's in that context of division that we find the very first appeal of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... That all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So Paul implores the Corinthians to agree with one another. But he wasn't just saying that they should simply agree to disagree. Uh, He sets a very high standard of what unity is in the church. And he called them to be unified in what they say, And to be perfectly united in mind and thought. So it's one thing not to form divisions and not to be divisive and follow different cliques. But it's a much higher hurdle for the entire church to think the same way and to speak the same message. And as I've studied and prayed about 1 Corinthians the last few weeks, I've just felt this persistent question, which was, what would Paul say? If he came to South Bay Church today and he observed us, what would he say? You know, as an ambassador of Jesus, I I believe that that Paul would encourage us in a lot of ways. He would remind us that, number one, we're new creations in Christ. And we have amazing people here who have been faithful for many, many years following Christ. We have amazing worship, amazing music. So there's a lot he would commend us on. But I also believe that Paul would warn us as well. I think Paul would warn us that we must be united in two critical areas. We need to be united in what we say and in what we do. In what we say because Paul wanted everyone in the church to be united in their message about Jesus. Because the message about Jesus and the cross is the power of God. And in what we do in terms of love for one another, our love for one another is the single most effective way of demonstrating the good news about Jesus to the world around us. So it's in the fatherly spirit of Paul 
that unity is what we're going to talk about today. Unity in what we say and unity in what we do. Let's pray as we get started. God, I just pray as we uh, get into the scriptures in more depth that you just um, encourage us. God, help us to see the importance of unity. Help us to see uh, what it means to be united in the way Paul was talking about. And I, I pray that, uh, that Father, you just can challenge us and, 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 and just call our faith to a higher level. And um, let your scriptures really speak to us today. Let the Spirit speak through your scriptures. And I pray that we go away uh, strengthened and encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So after this call for unity, Paul immediately redirects the Corinthians to the most important thing, which is the message about Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse, I'm going to start reading in verse, uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while... I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you with weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul was an apostle. The word apostle in Greek means one sent. So, an apostle is like an ambassador, an ambassador sent by Jesus himself with a very specific message. And Paul originally came to Corinth to proclaim the simple, powerful gospel of Jesus. And Paul didn't try to impress people with his fancy words or his superior knowledge because he didn't want the message of the cross to be emptied of its power. He didn't want to get in the way of that. And so when I went, in, went into the full-time ministry a couple of years ago and uh, left the corporate world, I, I decided to make this scripture one of my theme scriptures because I'm inspired by Paul's just laser-like focus in preaching the gospel. It's inspiring to me. And I am new to the ministry, so it's obvious to all of you that I am learning on the job. And uh, it can be a loose cannon at times, particularly when I'm up here. But if you force yourself to actually listen to me, which I know can be painful at times, You'll notice that I talk quite a lot of my sermons about the good news about Jesus because of this scripture. The scripture inspired me to do that. And I'll admit for some of us that have gone to church for many years, and there's some of you here that have been Christians for many, many years, some of you that are new, that maybe, maybe haven't um, embraced Christianity just yet. And that's, that's good. We're glad you're here. But if you're new to the church, if you're, if you're an established Christian and you have, you have been coming for a long time, when you hear the same thing about Jesus week after week, it can begin to sound very elementary and might even sound repetitive. But, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the message of Jesus is wisdom among the mature. It should be wisdom among those who are mature. To a mature Christian, the message about Jesus should never get old. You know, because Paul explains to us that Jesus is a wisdom that is not of this age. It's a wisdom that God predestined for us Before the ages, he says, for our glory. It's a wisdom that's revealed to us by the Spirit of God. It's not a wisdom that natural man can discern. And Jesus is this wisdom. Jesus is this true wisdom that I think we need to revisit every single Sunday. I say every day for that matter. So if you're tired of hearing the gospel, I encourage you to reframe your perspective on particularly the Sunday sermon. Because from my perspective, a preacher's temptation on Sunday is to use clever words and human wisdom 
in an effort to entertain the mature Christians who warm the seats week after week. And in doing so, I fear that we may fail to share the most important thing, which is the wisdom of Jesus and the cross, particularly to those that are darkening our doors for the first time. You know, my wife, Mia, and I are responsible for our guest experience team, which we call First Impressions. And so there's a team of us in the blue shirts that are out on the front line every Sunday welcoming people who come through our doors. And every Sunday we have new people that come to South Bay Church who have never been here before. And some of them have been personally invited by members of the church, but many of them are finding us online by a search. They do a Google search for church and South Bay Church pulls up. Thank you for search, search engine optimization for that. But, but they're finding us. And these first-time guests are coming to us because God is working in their hearts. And when he sends his people that he's working on, when he sends them our way, what an incredible honor that is. But also what an incredible responsibility that is. What does Jesus want first-time guests to hear when they come to South Bay Church? Does he want them to hear great music? Yeah, I think he does. And we have great music. We have Brian Craig and the E Street Band, for crying out loud. We have amazing worship here. Our music is awesome. Cool preacher. Well, we've got like four or five guys that preach, and they're all more cool than I am. You're not going to get cool today. I'm the least contemporant of all of us. But I believe that more than anything, God wants these people who are coming to us to hear the clear undiluted good news about Jesus and what we have through him. Because it's through Jesus and the cross that people see the real power of God. And the Sunday sermon may in fact be the first place where guests hear that wisdom about Jesus. And so it's important to preach the good news about Jesus. But let me tell you, the preacher can only do so much. I believe it's much more important for the members of the church to share the message about Jesus with our guests. Because people will see the real power of Jesus through each of you who are disciples, who are followers of Christ. And so get your head up during fellowship break. Look around you for crying out loud. There are people here every week that have never been here. And a lot of you are so engrossed in your conversations you don't even notice them. Wake up. Because you have something to share with them. Your story. And that's why Paul said we have to be perfectly united in what we say. Think about it this way. If some of our Christians are saying nothing about what Jesus has done in their lives, and some of them are sharing, we're not really united, are we? We we cannot just sit back and assume we're united in our message. In Colossians 4... Paul's in prison writing this, which is all the more convicting. But he says, pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul took great pains to present the message of Christ clearly. And he asked for prayers for God to open doors to his message, which he called the mystery of Christ. But notice that he called the church to make the most of every opportunity to present the gospel as well. To present the gospel to outsiders. And so if you're a Christian, or again what the Bible calls a disciple of Jesus, 
It's your responsibility to fill your conversations with the grace of Jesus. Yes, we need to be wise in how we act towards outsiders. Yes, we need to to, to relate to people based on where they are. But we need to look for ways to introduce the grace of Jesus into our conversations. And, you know, there's a story about that. At our parenting workshop that we had a few weeks ago, we were um, at our our MLA building, and, and I struck up this conversation with a young couple who's from one of our other churches here in coastal L.A., and the wife was super outgoing. The husband was a little detached, and he was just kind of not really listening, just kind of tuned out. And so I started directing some questions his way just to try to draw him out a little bit. And he eventually just said, hey, you know, I'm not a Christian. I have no interest in religion. I don't want to be told how I have to live. I don't want a list of rules and regulations I have to follow. And I'm like, okay, boom. But I saw a door opening. It would have been easy for me to say just, okay, cool, walk away. But I saw God opening a door there. And I sort of caught him off guard with my response because I said, you know what? I don't like religion either. He's like, well, what? you just said you're in the full time ministry. I said, no, I don't like religion. I don't consider myself religious at all because I proceeded to explain to him how authentic Christianity is not religion in the traditional sense. It's not about following a bunch of rules and regulations to get right with God. Christianity is about Jesus saving you, even though you've broken all the rules. And so in retrospect, I think I filled our conversation with the grace of Jesus in that situation. Because later, a a member of the church came up and approached me and thanked me for engaging with him and said, hey, you know what, he's been very defensive, but he's starting to let his guard down. I don't know what will happen to this guy. Hopefully he he, uh, eventually um, decides to, to surrender to Jesus. But the point is we need to fill our conversations with the grace of Christ. And many people out there have had bad experiences with Christianity. And in my experience, most of them have never met an authentic disciple, an authentic Christian. And so how we present the good news about Jesus is of utmost importance. We need to be wise and we need to make the most of every opportunity. And so I'm going to show you about a two-minute video clip here of how it can go off the rails when you're sharing about Jesus. Thank you, Lord, provided. Hey, God bless you guys. Barista, what's going on? God bless you. Hey, how's it going, man? I want the normal, my usual. Yeah, actually, we have a couple girls in line already. If I could just get you to move to the back, and I'll help you as soon as I'm done with that. Yeah, sorry about that. Last week first, first be last. Dude, do you go to church at all? Do you go to church at all? So do you go to church at all? Hey, is this seat open? Hey, is this seat available? Uh, dude, I just want to knock out some devos real quick. Spend some time with Jesus. I woke up kind of late this morning. Yeah, come on, scoot over. Scoot over. I'm going to sit down. I just want to share something from God's Word. He hit me up in my devos this morning, and I was like, i got to share this. Genesis 1, 1. Thirsty, huh? Getting some water? Yeah. Yeah, I know the living water. I was noticing that you're drawing some stuff over here. Back before when I wasn't a Christian, I, I was making so much money as a graphic designer. You been born again? You've been born again? 
Born again. And you need to quit walking in the flesh. I mean, obviously you don't really know God, your tattoos, and, you know, your ear and stuff. If you don't start out the day by bathing yourself in prayer, the day doesn't even go that well. You're not realizing that there is a God. He sent Jesus to die for you. Why don't you see that? And in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, I just would go to these crazy parties. It was crazy. Well, I mean, just cats like crazy, but, uh, but I've left all that behind. Now I'm a Christian. You can't live life without God. He's not real. He's here. I can't yes, see him. I'm just not getting through to you. God I can't is real. Touch him. Yeah, you can't touch Africa, but Africa exists. I just have to say, I'm blessed. Too blessed to be stressed by the devil's mess. What's holding you back from committing your life to Jesus Christ? It's probably the sin in your life is what's going on. Scared? Hell is scary. Why don't you look at that girl? Look at her. She's going to die. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. She's going to die. If you're going to die, where do you think you would go? Man, that sounded hot. I wonder how hot hell is. Hopefully you don't go there. Oh, this is good. The New Testament is so just applicable. Have you guys noticed this? Hey, you've got to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. I mean, so that you are justified, sanctified, future glorified. I and mean, this is amazing. You've got to come out. Do you drive a Volkswagen? Yeah, yeah, I do. But regardless, man, you've got to come to church. Hey, remember what I said? Hell? Scary. There's just way too much material there to even scratch the surface of how it can go off the rails when you share your faith. But I'll just mention three things. Number one, we can use weird religious language, right? Just too blessed to be stressed by the devil's mess, you know? People are already weirded out when they come to church. Like, they already are uncomfortable. And when you use language like that, it just makes it even worse for them. And so think about how you talk to people. That's the first thing. Number two, being judgmental. You know, he's obviously, he's sin in your life, isn't it? Yeah, he was obviously very judgmental. But, you know, I've actually heard someone coming to church here that might come from a place that has different doctrine than we do. And we can immediately dismiss them as if God has never worked in their life. And I've actually heard people say, oh, you're Catholic, or oh, you're Lutheran, or oh, well, fill in the blank. Oh, well, I'll be praying that you become a believer. What? I mean, how can we assume that no one from the Catholic Church believes in God? And God has never worked in somebody's life if they don't go to our church. How arrogant. We don't have to agree with their doctrine. But that doesn't mean that God has never shown himself to people outside of here. That's absurd. We need to approach people with humility if we ever expect to have an impact on them. The third thing is we can present the good news as bad news sometimes. In other words, we can present the gospel as if it's only giving up everything enjoyable in life and submitting yourself to this set of rules and strict code of morality. I don't know if you heard the guy in the video, but he said, I used to go to these parties. They were just crazy, man. They were wild. But I gave all that up to become a Christian. <laughs> you know, or he can say, I used to make all this money as a graphic designer, but now I'm a Christian. So in other words, we make it sound like, oh, wow, I've got to give everything good up to, to, to be a Christian. And you know why a lot of people stay away from church today? I'm convinced of this because... They have a perception that Christians are this bunch of self-righteous, moral stiffs that don't know how to have fun. And so how you represent the Christian life either confirms or refutes their perspective. So is being a follower of Jesus, is that a joyful thing for you? Or do you make it sound like a Guantanamo prison when you talk about it? You know, we can't just make Jesus about a bunch of rules and regulations. Because an authentic Christian life is joyful. 
It's a joyful response to what he's done for us. We love because he first loved us, the Bible tells us. And that love is what motivates us to obey him. So how can we be unified in sharing the good news? Well, I believe the most potent weapon you have is your own story. It's your own story. Because people want to hear more about why you have faith in Jesus. They want to know what he's done for you personally. And when people see how Jesus has transformed you, it becomes much more real for them. So, now we get to Annie. How many of you have seen Annie? Okay, Annie's old school. I think it was a play. Gina was Annie. That was Annie, uh, Gina back in the 80s. But people are inspired by the Annie story. It's a storyline where you have the pitiful orphan who's, you know, absolutely nothing, lost. And then one day she's adopted by this benevolent billionaire who lavishes her with amazing love and gifts. And now she's wealthy beyond her wildest dreams and this rags to riches, hurrah, hurrah. But as disciples of Jesus, we can forget that that's sort of like our storyline. You know, think about it. You were hopelessly lost, but the perfect father seeks you out and adopts you. And his... His dad is even richer than Daddy Warbucks, right? We have God as our father. And not only that, but his son died to make you a co-heir with him, to put you in the will. So how do you feel about your new dad if you were Annie? How do you feel about your brother Jesus? How do you feel about your new family? The point is this. Nothing preaches louder than your life. And... Are you joyful? Are you thankful for what Jesus has done for you? Because I believe if we are unified in our joy, we will also be unified in our message about Jesus. And if that storyline is intriguing to you about how Jesus saves us and how God rescues you, and if you just want to know more because you're, you don't, you're not quite sure about this Christianity thing, please go through, sit down with us. We have a series of Bible studies that we'll do with you. Well, we'll show you in the scriptures what Jesus said he wants from people. What he wants for your life. And you can, you can ask the person who invited you. Uh, if you found us, just come to our guest services table out front. We'll connect you with someone in your area that will study the Bible and get to know you. But please do that. But, you know, in my experience, I think perhaps the greatest enemy to the good news is discouragement. And when we're new Christians, we're eager to share the good news about, about what Jesus has done. And, with, and we're eager to share with anybody who will listen. But... You know, as time goes on, we begin to see that sometimes God's work can be painful. Um, I've found that. I, I mean, I find it painful when people don't respond to the gospel immediately when I want them to, because I'm very impatient. I find it painful when I rearrange my whole schedule, my whole life, to study the Bible with someone, and then they end up deciding, yeah, not, not for me, and walking away from it. You know, that's painful to me, because I feel like I'm watering the seeds in vain. You know, it hurts when I've helped someone become a Christian and then they say, I'm done. I'm walking away. I don't want that anymore. That pruning can hurt. And it hurts when you feel like you're working hard for Jesus and you just don't have anything tangible to show for what you've done. And that reward that he promises can seem so remote at times to me. And this past week, I'll, I'll confess, I was feeling a little discouraged because some people that I have been studying the Bible with haven't responded as quickly as I'd hoped they would. And so I went for this long prayer walk this week on a beach and I spent some time really crying out to God, God, why? Why do you have me live this life and do all this? You know, I feel like there's just so little to show for it sometimes. And I said I'd come back to my opening story because it occurred to me while I was praying this week on the beach that I learned an important lesson from my earthly dad. And that lesson was a good father 
doesn't excuse you from the work just because it's hard. A good father doesn't excuse you from the work just because it's hard. And my dad expected me to work hard to plant, to work hard to water, to work hard to prune. And this, by the way, I found this online. as a guy pruning Christmas trees. That's what it looks like. People thought that was me. It's not me. But it was a guy, you can see the machete cutting the branches off time after time. It's horrible. But my, I would say to my dad, I'd say, why, dad? Why do I have to give up my time to do this? I just want to watch Bugs Bunny with my friends, for crying out loud. This work is hard. My body hurts. It's hot. It's cold. It's bugs. I hate it. It's miserable. And my dad said, I know it feels hard, son. But I'm working alongside you. And someday you're going to see a reward for this work. And I would say, but someday is way far off, Dad. I'm hurting right now and this work is killing me. It's hard. It feels futile. I want to give up. I don't want to water. I don't want to prune. I don't want to work anymore. But the good father says, keep going, son. Don't give up because I'm right there with you. And yeah, the harvest might not happen when you want it to happen. But you have to keep working with me because it's never in vain. Someday when, 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 when it's all done, we're going to rejoice together. When these seeds that we've planted and watered have grown up and the harvest is ready. And in the meantime, son, the work itself is valuable. Because this work is teaching you an important lesson about perseverance and an important lesson about faith. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. My friends, let us not grow weary. Don't ever give up. We have to be united as a church in what we say about Jesus. We have to continue to plant the seeds. We have to continue to tell people about Jesus and the miracles that he's worked in our lives to tell our story. But, you know, unity doesn't end with what we say. We have to be totally united as well in what we do. And really quickly, in John 13, 34, you know the scripture. Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, Jesus knew that his disciples would be known by one thing. Disciples aren't known by their, by their righteous lifestyle, although the morality is important. They aren't known by never missing a church service, although going to a church is important, critical. They aren't known as disciples because they've taken their first communion or because they're from a good disciple family. Disciples of Jesus are simply known by their love. And they love as Jesus loved. It's a love that people see and they say, that's not of this world. It's clear that that's not of this world because people don't do that for each other in the world. They don't sacrifice for each other that way in the world. That could only be the love of Jesus. And as ambassador of Jesus, Paul knew this. And the Corinthians apparently took pride in their knowledge. Because, but based on how they were living, it was clear though that they weren't living in love. They weren't walking in love. And that's why Paul warned the Corinthians that their faith was useless without love. You know, you can speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but if you don't have love, it's a clanging gong or clanging cymbal, resounding gong. You can have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. Now, if you can give all you have to the poor and surrender your body to the flames, if you don't love... It's nothing. 
And so, I, I believe if Paul were speaking to us today, he would admonish South Bay Church. He'd say, you know, you guys are so knowledgeable about the Bible. You've been faithful for so many years, some of you. Your singing and your worship is amazing at South Bay Church. There's so much awesomeness here. But show me your love. In fact, love is so important that Paul took the time to write a beautiful passage to carefully define it for the Corinthians and for us. And it's so familiar, I'm not even going to read it because you could all cite it from memory. A lot of you could. And if you haven't heard it at church, you've heard it at a wedding, I'm sure. So, like the Corinthians, we have the knowledge. Many of us have the knowledge. But are you walking the walk? Are you walking in love? Are you really loving as Jesus loved? It's, I think it's important for each of us to do a personal assessment here. Because it's your love that proves if you are a new creation in Christ. And I encourage you this week to look at each aspect of love in this scripture in 1 Corinthians 13. And ask yourself, does that describe me? Or better yet, ask somebody that knows you really well. <laughs> Patience. Are you, are you, how are you treating the people that annoy you? <laughs> Kindness. Were you kind enough to give even one dollar to special missions? One dollar to special missions to help poor people to hear the gospel around the world. A lot of you have given zero. Is that kind? Does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. You know the rest. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And I've, I've looked at myself in here, too. There's so much in love, I am just not there. Patience is huge. I need to wait for God to work with people in his timing, not my own. Always protecting, making sure that my speech builds people up, doesn't tear people down, protecting people by how I speak, keeping no record of wrongs, not holding grudges, talking through when people hurt me, always persevering, not growing weary. But what are we known for, South Bay Church? I think if someone comes in here, is it immediately obvious that we are disciples of Christ because of our love for one another? Because our church as a whole is very simply the sum of the individual parts. South Bay Church will only be as loving as you personally are loving. And so each part of the body is indispensable. So are you doing your part? Are you doing your part? So as I wrap it up, I I pray that we make our brother Paul proud. (laughs) And I believe we can make Jesus proud as well. We can do that by being completely unified in our message about the good news of Christ. And And we can present Jesus as the good news that he really is. And we can push through discouragement because our labor is never in vain. And we need to go beyond just words, though. We need to walk in love. We need to walk the walk. Because nothing will show that Jesus is real more than your love for one another. We need to be unified in our love because, as Paul said, love never fails. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.